to Daybreak Africa from the Voice of America. I am James Butte in Washington. Today is Wednesday, December 21st, and here are some of the stories we are covering. The UN relaxes its arms embargo on the Democratic Republic of Congo. In an official statement, the government spokesperson said the DRC government welcomes the vote of the UN Security Council, which puts an end to an injustice. The United Nations says international support can pull Somalia back from the brink of famine. A conversation with the first woman to form a political party in Eswatini. Malawi court staff returned to work after strike. Gunmen killed at least 38 villagers in northwestern Nigeria's Kaduna state. Lesotho's new prime minister discusses priorities for his first 100 days in office. My first 100 days, one of the things that I'm going to make sure is done is to light our city, which is our capital town, Maseru, and also to patch up the potholes that are all over town. And a shrinking ice cap on Mount Kilimanjaro threatens tourism in Tanzania. Those stories and more are coming up on Daybreak Africa. The Democratic Republic of Congo says it welcomes a decision by the UN Security Council to relax a nearly 19-year-old arms embargo on the country. Tuesday's decision comes as the government is battling the M23 and other rebel groups in the eastern DRC. The resolution says UN member states would no longer be required to notify the Security Council of arms sales or military support to Kinshasa. However, sales to non-governmental armed groups will still be banned. On the line from the eastern Congolese city of Goma is journalist Al-Katanti Sabiti Jaffa. Where all citizens warmly welcome the decision of the UN Security Council. The reaction of the Congolese government was quick. In an official statement, the government spokesperson said the DRC government welcomes the vote of the UN Security Council, which puts an end to an injustice. What do you think this will mean in terms of the DRC government's fight against the M23 and uh, other rebel groups? It's not only about M23. This decision means that now the Democratic Republic of Congo will be able to get from outside or to pay from any country military equipment such as weapons and munition. You know, from now, 14 years ago, the DRC was under an embargo and they was fighting against many rebellions like CNDP, M23, the first M23, the second M23, the Islamist ADF and other local armed groups, but the army was not able to get more weapon or more munition. So this means that the country will be able to defend itself as they will now get the opportunity to buy new equipment, new weapons, and to give the power of fighting to their soldiers. Were there any conditions imposed by the Security Council in lifting the arms embargo? Absolutely, James. There is a condition from the UN Security Council. The government of DRC has to provide no later than the end of May of next year a report with the details of how they will protect, they will mark, they will do the monitoring of weapons. You know, 
The problem is that UN don't want this weapon to land in the rebels group's hands. Thank you so much again, Jafar. So nice to talk with you. Thank you, James. You're welcome. That was journalist Jafar Al-Katanti speaking with us from Goma in the Eastern Democratic Republic of Congo. UN aid agencies say large-scale sustained humanitarian assistance can prevent Somalia's looming famine from turning into a full-blown disaster in the coming months. Lisa Schlein reports for VOA from Geneva. Thanks to generous international support this year, famine in Somalia has been delayed. But the threat of mass starvation in 2023 remains due to a fifth year of consecutive drought, skyrocketing food prices, and intensifying conflict. A recent UN food assessment found the number of people facing acute food insecurity could rise to 8.3 million by April. And the number of Somalis facing catastrophic food insecurity could increase to more than 700,000 by June. It warned some areas will face outright famine if humanitarian assistance is not scaled up and sustained. Etienne Peter Schmidt is the UN Food and Agriculture Organization representative in Somalia. Speaking from the capital Mogadishu, he says the specter of Somalia's 2011 famine continues to haunt aid agencies, and what happened then must not be repeated now. So just to recall that in 2011, and, and we've mentioned that in in, uh, in in several reports, and we are uh, we keep highlighting that fact is that uh, by the time famine was declared, uh, half of the of the people who actually died of famine had already died. More than a quarter million people died of famine that year. Half of them children under age five. FAO reports rural communities are currently among those at greatest risk and in greatest need. The unprecedented drought, it notes, has forced entire pastoral, agro-pastoral, and farming communities to leave home and seek humanitarian aid in crowded displacement camps in towns. Peter Schmidt says their ability to stave off hunger and famine depends on the survival of their herds and ability to grow crops. Their children's nutrition, and we mentioned that before, is directly linked to the health and productivity of their animals. Unable to produce milk, those animals have been dying at skyrocketing rates for the last year. Of great concern is the approximately 1.8 million children who are likely to be malnourished. Earlier projections of famine so far have been averted because humanitarian assistance has covered much of the most basic needs. UN agencies say this aid must continue and be increased. On December 1st, the United Nations launched a record $51.5 billion humanitarian response plan to assist 69 countries in 2023. The plan asks for $2.2 billion in support of 7.6 million people in Somalia. Lisa Schlein for VOA News, Geneva. Lesotho's new Prime Minister Sam Matikani says he plans to run his administration like a business. Matikani, a prominent business magnate, says he plans to hold the government accountable under his leadership. The new Prime Minister also promises to implement policies that he says will improve the living conditions of the people. The Prime Minister, who was in Washington to participate in the U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit, discussed with VOS Peter Clotty the priorities of his administration's first 100 days. My first 
100 days, one of the things that I'm going to make sure is done is to light our city, which is our capital town, Marcelo, and also to patch up the potholes that are all over town, and also to make sure that uh, we have already started uh, in agriculture, because we want to make sure that we have uh, food security is one of our most important uh, things in our lives. We need to secure food for our nation. We have already started uh, engaging ourselves in planting. So we have done that and many other small things. But those are just the three major ones. With all these that you've mentioned, all will take quite a sizable amount of money. How will you fund these projects? The funding we have already secured. Uh, we have started this project that I'm mentioning because we have, we have had some funds for it. So it's actually not uh, even uh, you know, a large amount of money that we're required to do that. So we are carrying on doing the same thing, and it will be done by within that 100 days. It will be completed. You talked about energy. Lesotho has a lot of uh, fresh water. How do you intend using that as a competitive advantage to generate power? When you look at uh, re renewable energy production, we are definitely going to go uh, into hydropower just to make sure that we have enough uh, electricity supply for us as a country. And beyond that, we're going to have access and then so that we can be able to export it to our neighbors. Again, we're going to take advantage of the wind energy and also the solar energy and the hydrogen. So all those are the things that we're working on. I understand you signed the MCC compact. What are your expectations of the, this agreement? Uh, what do you want to see happen? First of all, uh, I must thank uh, the U.S. government for the first compact that they uh, gave to us, which went very, very, very well. Now, lately, uh, we have signed Compact 2, which is supposed to start in the next year or, or so. There were some uh, laws that they needed us to pass before finally. But uh, as of yesterday, we got the royal assent to those three laws which they mentioned. And then uh, it's a done deal now. Yeah, we have provided what, they, uh, what was lacking, so that is done. And those laws were uh, fighting corruption right. and also counter-domestic violence, uh, rights of customary widows, uh, and the Millennium Challenge. So talk to me about the fight against corruption. How do you plan to do that? Because a lot of people of Lesotho have often accused politicians of being corrupt. You said you want to do things differently. How are you going to fight corruption? First of all, we're going to make sure that uh, rule of law is in place and then also uh, the respect for human rights and also our labor laws and a stable government. And we have made it a priority that within the, the 100 days, uh, part of those reforms, the most important ones, will be passed still within the 100 days. That was Prime Minister Sam Matekani of Lesotho. He spoke with viewers Peter Clotty on the sidelines of the just-concluded U.S.-Africa Leaders Summit in Washington, D.C.
You're listening to Daybreak Africa on the Voice of America. I am James Butte in Washington. Today is Wednesday, December 21st. For more African news and features, visit our website at voaafrica.com. Connect with us on all social media platforms. We are on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. The first woman to form a political party in Eswatini, formerly Swaziland, says the time has come for women to get out of the kitchen and take center stage in the struggle to democratize the kingdom. Busi Mayisela is founder and president of the Swazi First Democratic Front Party. The formation of the new party comes as politicians, civil society and students have been holding consistent protests to demand direct participation in the democratic process. Although there are political parties in Eswatini, candidates can only run for office as individuals, not as official members of their parties. Eswatini's next parliamentary and local elections are in 2023, Mayisala tells me that the aim of her party is to expedite the attainment of multi-party democracy within two years. Basically, we are pushing the social democratic ideology. We want to advocate for social justice and economic emancipation for all. As you know, in Switzerland, at present, political parties are not legally allowed to contest in power. So at the moment, the assignment is to collaborate with all the other democracy-loving organizations in order to make sure that the aristocratic regime is no more. So as you said, if political parties are not legally registered in Eswatini or Swaziland, why bother having a political party then? We are defying because we feel it's time, it's because as you can recall, um, after independence in 1968, we had political parties in the country, and in 1973, they were banned. So now we want to take the power back to the people, so we are basically defying all the rules that are sitting on the uh, rights of the people. So basically, that's, it's a defiant stance by the sources now. So there were political parties, or there are political parties before your party, what has been their reception to your new party? Um, it's really encouraging that they have really welco- welcomed another voice and they are um, uh, saying it's okay, we can all push the government together so we are well welcomed by the other political parties. Now, Busi, are you the first woman to have a political party in Swaziland? Yes, yes, I am. What does it mean to be the first female to have a political party in Eswatini? I think um, as a woman and as a mother, it's important for me now to take um, the forefront because I'm a mother, which means I know the pain of having a child. And as a woman, I also need to represent other women. We can't be in the kitchen any longer. We can't be behind the men. We need to take the center stage and also fight for our uh, rights and our freedom. There's a lot of political agitation going on in Eswatini or Swaziland now. Your party is coming into being at this time of this political agitation. What do you make of all that is going on in Swaziland? I think what is happening now is that we are really putting pressure on government from all ends. And I'm happy that um, even the transport workers now have put aside um, making profit and making business, but uh, are putting first the agenda of liberating Emaswati by stopping to 
go to work and make those profits, which means the economy of the country is going to suffer a lot. But this is not about the economy. It's basically going to push the government to realize that now Swazis really means business. If they are willing to stop even going to work and stop even uh, making a business just to push government to the dialogue table. So I'm excited that all Maswati from all sectors now are coming together. Busi, thank you so much again for being the first woman to have a political party in Eswatini or Swaziland. Thank you so much, James. Thank you. That was Busi Maisala, founder and president of the Swazi First Democratic Front Party, Eswatini's first female-led political party. She was speaking with me from the country's capital, Mbabane. Support staff for Malawi's judiciary staff has ended a week-long labor strike after the government promised to consider its demands next year. Authorities have told the workers that the government will honor their grievances in April. Lamek Masi now reports from Blantyre. The striking judicial support staff resumed the work Monday after several meetings between representatives of the workers and the Malawian government authorities and the Haliwa's spokesperson for the judiciary members of staff union in Malawi. Haliwa said Finance Minister Sosten Gwengwe told them during the meeting over the weekend that their demands are not a part of the current budget. We met uh, the Minister of Finance in Nilongwe where we had discussions as regards to the same and uh, we reached a compromise whereby government made a commitment that uh, come next financial year April they might maybe uh, they might give us what we wanted. The strikers demand include improved working conditions and allowances for working overtime or outside their normal places of employment among other things. Some critics of the government say the budget excuse is a way for officials to sidestep the striking workers' demand, but Haliwa does not feel so. No, 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 no. Much as we are unionists, we trust our government, but the only problem we had was lack of communication. So whenever we requested the minister to meet him, we accepted, we met, we discussed, and he promised that he would honor his promise. The strike, which began December 12, led to the indefinite suspension of many cases as the strikers barricaded court buildings, denying access to judges, lawyers, and other regular court users. The strike also left prison and the police cells overflowing with crime suspects. Peter Kalaya is the spokesperson for the Malawi Police Service. He says the resumption of the court operations will help ease crowding in the police station holding cells. It was really bad because in all the days that these officers were on strike, we were still making arrests. And uh, we have ourselves that are actually meant as temporal custody. So we had congestions in most of our police cells. A strike lasted two months in 2015 when workers demanded a 30% salary increase. Michael Gaiatsa is the executive director for the Center for Human Rights and Rehabilitation. He says the government should work out a way to ensure that future court strikes do not happen. It's not right that every time they have concerns, the government has to turn a blind eye. To to avoid a similar situation, I think it's important that the government should be proactive in addressing the concerns uh, raised by judicial workers and and, and also other critical service providers. Haliwa says the workers have signed a memorandum of understanding with the government.
to ensure that their demands are honored. However, he adds that court workers might resume their strike if the government flouts the agreement and fails to take their demands seriously. Lamik Masina for VOA News, Blanta, Malawi. Government have killed at least 38 villagers in northwestern Nigeria's Kaduna state. Residents and local community groups said on Tuesday, December 20th, a region that is chronically marred by armed violence. Olivia Chan reports. Gunmen killed at least 38 villagers in northwestern Nigeria's Kaduna state. That's according to residents and local community group on Tuesday. The region is chronically marred by armed violence. According to Luca Biniet, a spokesperson for the Southern Kaduna People's Union, the attack started late on Sunday night and continued into the early hours of Monday morning. Armed men shot people and burned at least 100 houses, he said. Resident Jason Joseph said the attackers had killed some people with machetes. Even though I didn't lose my child, my mother, but I lost my uncles, my brothers, my friends, everywhere around. If you go down there, the two streets now, you see cops everywhere lying down. Biniet said 12 survivors from the attacks were receiving hospital treatment and volunteers were searching for those missing. Gangs of armed men have attacked hundreds of local communities across northwestern Nigeria in recent years, while Islamist militants continue to stage attacks in the northeast. A Nigerian police spokesman did not immediately respond to requests for comment. That was Reuters correspondent Olivia Chan reporting. UN experts say the ice cap on Africa's highest peak, Tanzania's Mount Kilimanjaro, is among world-famous glaciers predicted to melt by 2050 due to climate change. While scientists are studying the ice to try to halt the melting, those who depend on the mountain for tourism also worry about the future. Charles Kumbe reports from Kilimanjaro, Tanzania. Julius Keyu has participated in various studies on Mount Kilimanjaro. His studies have revealed changes in the mountain ice cap from time to time. He says many studies that we have carried out show that it is true the glacier in Mount Kilimanjaro is shrinking. Keyu asks that these studies reveal that so far the glacier has shrunk by 20%. For locals here, Mount Kilimanjaro is a symbol of fortune, and it brings tens of millions of dollars to the region through 50,000 tourists who climb the mountain annually. However, like glaciers in the Antarctic and Arctic, the ice cap on Mount Kilimanjaro has gotten notably smaller due to climate change. Agatha Bernard is a tour operator at Afro Lioness Adventure. She says we'll have lost the biggest tourist attraction and a market that we believe brings a lot of income to our country. For those who work in the tourism industry, she says, tourists who climb mountains are the ones that bring a lot of money. She says, my biggest fear is that I will lose customers. That is money, not only to me, but to the government. She adds, we'll also lose the light and potential of our mountain. Earlier this year, an intergovernmental panel on climate change report listed the melting of ice and snow as one of 10 key threats from climate change. The United Nations says the glacier could be saved only if 
the world limits global warming to 1.5 degrees Celsius. Imani Kikoti is the deputy director of Kilimanjaro National Park. Kikoti says we continue to educate the public on conservation especially in the villages surrounding the mountain. We have also continued to insist citizens plant many trees in their places to provide for themselves and cope with climate change, he added. Meanwhile, Kayo believes that the glacier, while shrinking, will survive. The studies on the ice cap have been done mainly by foreigners and are lacking key experts and pieces of equipment, he says. The people who work in Tanzania's tourism industry hope he is correct. Charles Kombe for VU News in Kilimanjaro, Tanzania. And that's it for this Wednesday, December 21st edition of Daybreak Africa. I am James Botti in Washington.